being its very nature so to do. This wondrous change which takes place in each of those for whom Christ died is here attributed directly and absolutely to God. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. This is much more than a bare offer being made unto men, far beyond an ineffectual invitation which is to be received. It is an invincible and miraculous operation of the Holy Spirit which thoroughly transforms the favored subjects of it. Only he who first made man can remake him. None but the Almighty can repair the awful damage which the fall wrought, counteract the dreadful power of sin, deliver the heart from the lusts of the flesh, the thraldom of the world, the bondage of Satan, and rewrite upon it his holy law so that he will be loved supremely and served sincerely and gladly. I will put my laws into their hearts. This is in contrast from those who were under the old or Sinaitic covenant. There the ten words were engraven upon tables of stone, not only to intimate thereby their fixed and permanent authority, but also to figure forth the hardness of the hearts of the unregenerate people to whom they were given. But under the new covenant, that is, the administration of the everlasting covenant and the application of its grace to God's elect in this gospel dispensation, God gives efficacy to His holy law in the souls of His people. First, by subduing and largely removing the enmity of the natural heart against Him and His law, which subduing is figuratively spoken of as a circumcising of the heart. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, and a taking away the stony heart, Ezekiel 36:26. Second, by implanting the principle of obedience to his law, which is figuratively referred to as the giving of an heart of flesh and the writing of his laws upon the heart. Observe very particularly, dear hearer, that God here says not, I will put my promises, but my laws in their hearts. He will not relinquish his claims. Unreserved subjection to his will is what his justice requires and what his power secures. The grand triumph of grace is that enmity against the law, Romans 8, 7, is displaced by love for the law, Psalm 119, 97. This is it which explains that word in Psalm 19:7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. It will probably surprise most of our hearers, alas, that it should do so, to be told that the gospel never yet converted anybody. No, it is the law which the Spirit uses to convict of rebellion against God 
and not until the soul penitently repudiates and forsakes his rebellion is it ready for the message of peace which the gospel brings. The careful hearer will notice there is a slight difference between the wording of Hebrews 8.10 and 10.16. In the former it is, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. But in the passage now before us, the two clauses are reversed. One reason for this is as follows. Hebrews 8.10 gives the divine order of operation. The mind is first informed, and then the heart is reformed. Moreover, in Hebrews 8.10, it is a question of knowing God, and for that, the understanding must be enlightened before the affections can be drawn out to Him. None will love an unknown God. The Spirit begins by conveying to the regenerate an efficacious knowledge of the authority and excellency of God's laws, giving them a powerful realization both of their binding force and spirituality. And then he communicates a love for them so that their hearts are heartily inclined toward them. When the Apostle defines the seat of the corruption of our nature, he places it in the mind and heart. Walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Therefore does the divine work of sanctification or the renovating of our natures consist of the rectifying both of the mind and heart, and this by furnishing them with the principles of faith, love, and adherence to God. Thus the grace of the new covenant purchased for his people by Christ is as extensive to repair our nature as sin is in its residence and power to deprave us. God desireth truth in the inward parts. Psalm 51.6 Not that outward conformity to his law may be dispensed with, for that is required too. But unless it proceed from an inward love for his law, the external actions cannot be accepted by him. John Owen said, From these things we may easily discern the nature of that grace which is contained in this first branch of the first promise of the covenant. And this is the effectual operation of his Spirit in the renovation and saving illumination of our minds, whereby they are habitually made conformable unto the whole law of God, that is, the rule and the law of our obedience in the new covenant and enabled unto all acts and duties that are required of us. And this is the first grace promised and communicated unto us by virtue of this covenant, as it was necessary that so it should be. For one, 
The mind is the principal seat of all spiritual obedience. 2. The proper and peculiar actings of the mind in discerning, knowing, judging, must go before the actings of the will and affections much more before all outward practices. 3. The deprivation of the mind is such by blindness, darkness, vanity and enmity that nothing can inflame our souls or make an entrance towards the reparation of our natures but an internal spiritual saving operation of grace upon the mind. In Hebrews 10.16, the heart is mentioned before the mind because the Spirit is here giving the divine standard for us to measure ourselves by. It is the test whereby we may ascertain whether or no we are among the sanctified who have been perfected forever by the one offering of Christ. An intellectual knowledge of God's laws is no proof of regeneration, but a genuine heart acquaintance with them is. The questions I need to honestly face are such as these. Is there within me that which answers to the law without me? That is, is it actually and truly my desire and determination to be regulated and controlled by the revealed will of God? Is it the deepest longing of my soul and the chief business of my life to please and serve God? Is it the great burden of my prayers that He will work in me both to will and to do of His good pleasure? Is my deepest grief occasioned by my failure to be altogether holy in my wishes and words and ways? Experimentally, the more we love God, the more shall we discern the excellency of His law. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Verse 17. Notice again the order of our passage. What is found here comes after verse 16 and not before. In the order of grace, justification, of which forgiveness is the negative side, precedes sanctification. But in the believer's apprehension it is otherwise. I can only ascertain God's justifying of me by making sure I have within the fruits of His sanctifying me. I must study the effects to discover the cause. In like manner, God elects before He calls or regenerates, but I have to make my calling sure in order to obtain evidence of my election. See Second Peter 1.10 There are many who give no sign of God's law being written in their hearts, who nevertheless claim to have had their sins forgiven by Him. But such are sadly deceived. Scripture entitles none to regard themselves as divinely pardoned save those who have been saved from self-will and self-pleasing. 
and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. These words must not be understood to signify that the sins of God's people have vanished from his essential mind, but rather that they will never be recalled by him as he exercises his office as judge. Our substitute, having already discharged our liabilities, and just as having been fully satisfied, payment cannot be demanded twice over. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 This is the negative side of the believer's justification, that his sins are not reckoned to his account. The positive aspect is that the perfect law-righteousness of Christ is imputed to him. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Verse 18. Here, the Apostle draws the irrefutable conclusion from the premises he had so fully established. Before pondering it, let us give a brief summary of these wonderful verses. First, the everlasting covenant is the foundation of all God's gracious dealings with his elect. Second, that eternal compact between the Father and the Mediator is now being administered under the new covenant. Third, the design of this covenant is not to set apart a people unto external holiness only, but to so sanctify them that they should be holy in heart and life. Fourth, this sanctification of the elect is effected by the communication of effectual grace unto them for their conversion and obedience, which is here under a figure spoken of as God's putting his laws into their hearts and writing them in their minds. Fifth, this practical sanctification is God's continuation of that work of grace which he begins in us at regeneration. Our glorification is the completing of the same, for then the last remains of sin will be removed from us and we shall be perfectly conformed to the image of his Son. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. These words give the apostles application of the scripture quoted from Jeremiah, which was made for the express purpose of demonstrating the perfection of Christ's sacrifice. The conclusion is irresistible. The one offering of Christ has secured that the grace of the everlasting covenant shall be communicated unto all of those for whom he died, both in the sanctifying and justifying of their persons. Since then their sins are all gone from before the face of God, no further sacrifice is needed. Arthur Pink Continued in the February Studies Study number three The Life of David David as a Youth The Life of David 
marked an important epoch in the unfolding of God's purpose and plan of redemption. Here a little and there a little, God made known the grand goal toward which all his dealings tended. At sundry times and in divers manners, God spake in times past. In various ways and by different means was the way prepared for the coming of Christ. The work of redemption with respect to its chief design is carried on from the fall of man to the end of the world by successive acts and dispensations in different ages, but all forming part of one great whole and all leading to the one appointed and glorious climax. Jonathan Edwards, 1757, said, God wrought many lesser salvations and deliverances for his church and people before Christ came. Those salvations were all but so many images and forerunners of the great salvation Christ was to work out when he should come. The church during that space of time enjoyed the light of divine revelation or God's word. They had, in a degree, the light of the gospel, but all those revelations were only so many forerunners and earnests of the great light which he should bring who came to be the light of the world. That whole space of time was, as it were, the time of night wherein the church of God was not indeed wholly without light, but it was like the light of the moon and stars that we have in the night, a dim light in comparison with the light of the sun. The church all that time was a minor. See Galatians 4, 1-3. We shall not here attempt to summarize the divine promises and pledges which were given during the earlier ages of human history nor the shadows and symbols which God then employed as the prefigurations of that which was to come. To do so would require us to review the whole of the Pentateuch. Most of our hearers are more or less familiar with the early history of the Israelitish nation and of what that history typically anticipated. Yet comparatively few are aware of the marked advance that was made in the unfolding of God's counsels of grace in the days of David. A wonderful flood of light was then shed from heaven on things which were yet to come, and many new privileges were then vouchsafed unto the Old Testament church. In the preceding ages it had been made known that the Son of God was to become incarnate, for none but a divine person could bruise the serpent's head, compare Jude 9, and he was to do so by becoming the woman's seed, Genesis 3.15. To Abraham God had made known that the Redeemer should, according to the flesh, descend from him. In the days of Moses and Aaron, 
much had been typically intimated concerning the Redeemer's priestly office and ministry. But now it pleased God to announce that particular person in all the tribes of Israel from which Christ was to proceed, namely David. Out of all the thousands of Abraham's descendants, a most honorable mark of distinction was placed upon the son of Jesse by anointing him to be king over his people. This was a notable step toward advancing the work of redemption. David was not only the ancestor of Christ, but in some respects the most eminent personal type of him in all the Old Testament. Quoting again from Jonathan Edwards, God's beginning of the kingdom of his church in the house of David was, as it were, a new establishing of the kingdom of Christ, the beginning of it in a state of such visibility as it thenceforward continued in. It was, as it were, God's planting the root whence that branch of righteousness was afterwards to spring up. That was to be the everlasting king of his church, and therefore this everlasting king is called the branch from the stem of Jesse. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Isaiah 11.1 1. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise up unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper. Jeremiah 23.5 So Christ in the New Testament is called the root and offspring of David. Revelation 22.16 It is deserving of our closest attention and calls for our deepest admiration that each advance which was made in the unfolding of the counsels of divine grace occurred at those times when human reason would have least expected them. The first announcement of the divine incarnation was given not while Adam and Eve remained in a state of innocency, but after they had rebelled against their Maker. The first open manifestation and adumbration of the everlasting covenant was made after all flesh had corrupted its way on earth and the flood had almost decimated the human race. The first announcement of the particular people from which the Messiah would spring was published after the general revolt of men at the Tower of Babel. While the wondrous revelation found in the last four books of the Pentateuch was made not in the days of Joseph, but after the whole nation of Israel had apostatized. See Ezekiel 25-9. The principle to which attention has been directed received further exemplification in God's call of David. One has but to read through the book of Judges to discover the terrible deterioration which succeeded the death of Joshua. For upwards of five centuries, a general state of lawlessness prevailed. In those days, there was no king in Israel, 
Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Judges 21.25 Following this was Israel's demand for a king, and that that they might be like all the nations. 1 Samuel 8.20 Therefore did Jehovah declare, I gave thee a king in mine anger, and took him away in my wrath. Hosea 13.11 He too was an apostate, and his history ends by his consulting a witch. 1 Samuel 28 And perishing on the battlefield. 1 Samuel 31 Such is the dark background upon which the ineffable glory of God's sovereign grace now shone forth. Such is the historical setting of the life of him we are about to consider. The more carefully this be pondered, the more shall we appreciate the marvelous interposition of divine mercy at a time when the prospects of Israel seemed well-nigh hopeless. But man's extremity is always God's opportunity. Even at that dark hour, God had ready the instrument of deliverance, a man after his own heart. But who he was and where he was located, none but Jehovah knew. Even Samuel the prophet had to be given a special divine revelation in order to identify him. And this brings us to that portion of Scripture which introduces to us David as a youth. And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. 1 Samuel 16.1 This is the sequel to what is recorded in 1 Samuel 16.10-12. Saul had despised Jehovah, and now he was rejected by him. 1 Samuel 15.23 True, he continued to occupy the throne for some little time. Nevertheless, Saul was no longer owned of God. An important principle is here illustrated, which only the truly spirit-taught can appreciate. A person, an institution, a corporate company, is often rejected by God secretly a while before the solemn fact is evidenced outwardly. Judaism was abandoned by the Lord immediately before the cross, Matthew 23.38, yet the temple stood until A.D. 70. God had provided him a king among the sons of Jesse the Bethlehemite, and as Micah 5.2 informs us, Bethlehem Ephrathah was little among the thousands of Judah. Ah, God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, and things 
which are not, to bring to naught things that are. 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven and 28 And why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. Verse 29 God is jealous of his own honor, and therefore he is pleased to select the most unlikely and unpromising instruments to execute his pleasure as the unlettered fishermen of Galilee to be the first heralds of the cross, that it may the more plainly appear the power is his alone. The principle which we have just named received further illustration in the particular son of Jesse, which was the one chosen of God. When Jesse and his sons stood before Samuel, It is said of the prophet that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. 1 Samuel 16.6 But the prophet was mistaken. And what was wrong with Eliab? The next verse tells us. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him, for the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Verse 7 Ah, my hearer, this is solemn and searching. It is at your heart the Holy One looks. What does he see in you? A heart that has been purified by faith, Acts 15.9. A heart that loves Him supremely, Deuteronomy 6.5. Or a heart that is still desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17.9. One by one, the seven sons of Jesse passed in review before the prophet's eye. But the man after God's own heart was not among their number. The sons of Jesse had been called to the sacrifice, verse 5, and apparently the youngest was deemed too insignificant by his father to be noticed on this occasion. But the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand, Proverbs 19.21. So inquiry and then request is made, that the despised one should be sent for. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Verse 12. Most blessed is it, to compare these words with what is said of our Lord in Song of Solomon 5, 10 and 16. My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among ten thousands. His mouth is most sweet, yea, he is altogether lovely. The principle of divine election is designed for the humbling of man's proud heart. Very striking and solemn is it to see that all through 
God ignored that in which the flesh glories. Isaac, and not Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn, was the one selected by God. Jacob, and not Esau, was the object of his eternal love. The Israelites, and not the Egyptians, the Babylonians, or the Greeks, was the nation chosen to shadow forth this blessed truth of God's sovereign foreordination. So here, the eldest sons of Jesse were all rejected by Jehovah, and David the youngest was the one of God's appointing. It should be observed, too, that David was the eighth son, and all through Scripture that numeral is connected with a new beginning, Suitably, then, and ordained by divine providence, was it that he should be the one to mark a fresh and outstanding epoch in the history of the favored nation. The elect of God are made manifest in time by the miracle of regeneration being wrought within them. This it is which has always distinguished the children of God from the children of the devil. Divine calling, or the new birth, is what identifies the high favorites of heaven. Thus it is written, Whom he did predestinate, them he also called, Romans 8.30, called out of darkness into his marvelous light, 1 Peter 2.9. This miracle of regeneration, which is the birthmark of God's elect, consists of a complete change of heart, a renewing of it, so that God becomes the supreme object of its delight, the pleasing of Him, its predominant desire and purpose, and love for His people, its characteristic note. God's chosen are transformed into the choice ones of the earth, for the members of Christ's mystical body, are predestinated to be conformed to the image of their glorious head, and thus do they, in their measure, in this life, show forth His praises. Beautiful is it to trace the fruits or effects of regeneration which were visible in David at an early age. At the time Samuel was sent to anoint him king, he was but a youth, but even then he evidenced most unmistakably the transforming power of divine grace. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. 1 Samuel 16.11 Thus the first sight we are given of David in God's word presents him as one who had a heart, a shepherd's care for those who symbolized the people of God. B.W. Newton said, Just as before when the strength of God's people were being wasted under Pharaoh, Moses their deliverer was hidden as a shepherd in a wilderness, so when Israel was again found in circumstances of deeper though less ostensible peril, 
we again find the hope of Israel concealed in the unknown shepherd of an humble flock. Unquote. An incident is recorded of the shepherd life of David that plainly denoted his character and forecast his future. Speaking to Saul, ere he went forth to meet Goliath, he said, Thy servant kept his father's sheep. And there came a lion and a bear, and took a lamb out of the flock, and I went out after him, and smote him, and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and smote him, and slew him. 1 Samuel seventeen thirty-four and 35 Observe two things. First, the loss of one poor lamb was the occasion of David's daring. How many a shepherd would have considered that a thing far too trifling to warrant the endangering of his own life? Ah, it was love to that lamb and faithfulness to his charge which moved him to act. Second, but how could a youth triumph over a lion and a bear? Through faith in the living God, he trusted in Jehovah and prevailed. Genuine faith in God is ever an infallible mark of his elect. Titus 1.1 there is at least one other passage which sheds light on the spiritual condition of David at this early stage of his life, though only they who are accustomed to weigh each word separately are likely to perceive it. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he sware unto the Lord and vowed unto the mighty God of Jacob, Surely I will not come into the tabernacle of my house, nor go up into my bed. I will not give sleep to mine eyes, or slumber to mine eyelids, until I find out a place for the Lord, and habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Lo, we heard of it at Ephratah, we found it in the fields of the wood. Psalm 132, 1-6 A careful reading of the whole psalm reveals to us the interests of the youthful David's heart. There, amid the pastures of Bethlehem Ephratah, he was deeply concerned for Jehovah's glory. In closing, let us note how conspicuous was the shepherd character of David in his early days. Anticipating for a moment that which belongs to a later consideration, let us thoughtfully observe how that after David had rendered a useful service to King Saul, it is recorded that David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. 1 Samuel 17.15 From the attractions or distractions of the court, he returned to the fold. The influences of an exalted position had not spoiled him for humble service.
Is there not a word here for the pastor's heart, the evangelistic field, or the Bible conference platform may furnish tempting allurements, but your duty is to the sheep over the which the good shepherd has placed you. Take heed to the ministry you have received of the Lord that you fulfill it. Fellow servant of God, your sphere may be an humble and inconspicuous one. The flock to which God has called you to minister may be a small one, but faithfulness to your trust is what is required of you. There may be an Eliab ready to taunt you and speak contemptuously of those few sheep in the wilderness. For Samuel 17.28 As there was for David to encounter, but regard not their sneers. It is written, His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Matthew twenty-five twenty-one. As David was faithful to his trust in the humble sphere in which God first placed him, so he was rewarded by being called to fill a more important position in which there too he honorably acquitted himself. He chose David also for his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the ewes great with young, he brought him to feed Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hand. Psalm seventy-eight, seventy to 72 Arthur Pink Continued in the February Studies Study number four The Claims of God Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart. For consider how great things He hath done for you. But if ye shall still do wickedly, Ye shall be consumed, 1 Samuel 12, 24 and 25. These words were uttered by God's servant to Israel at an important crisis in their national history. Dissatisfied with the divine theocracy, they wished to be like the heathen and have a human king to be their head and leader. The Lord suffered them to have their wish gratified, but pressed upon them the wickedness of it. Then his servant faithfully presented to them the certain issues of two courses of conduct. If they feared and served the Lord, he would prosper them. If they rebelled against him, his hand would smite them. Verses 14, 15, 24 and 25. In our text, we find Samuel setting before Israel the requirements of God from them. They were to fear and serve him. In it, 
He reminds them of the wondrous mercies which had been shown them and the obligation which these imposed. He bids them consider the great things which God had done for them. In verse 7, He called upon them to stand still while He reasoned with them before the Lord of His benefits, margin, unto them. God had brought them out of the house of bondage, verse 8. He had made them to dwell in the favored land of Canaan, verse 8. When they had departed from him, and he sorely chastened them, then they cried unto him, confessed their sin, and he graciously delivered them from their enemies, verses 9 to 11. What then ought to be their response? Fear and serve him. Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. Romans 15.4 The temporal deliverances which Jehovah wrought of old for Israel shattered forth the spiritual deliverances which Christ has secured for his people and which the Holy Spirit applies to them experimentally. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.stillwater.com swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. 
when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.